As Christians, we must not assume that we're anything special. In fact, we're not anything special at all. The Bible tells us that, even though the world would try to convince us otherwise. The Bible tells us very, very clearly that there's nothing about us that is special at all. In fact, in the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul says this in Galatians 6, 3, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Now that's succinct, it's to the point, and it tells us very clearly that if we think we're something when we're nothing, we deceive ourselves. Because the reality is that as Christians, we are nothing. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul even says this about himself and his colleagues in ministry. He says, 1 Corinthians 4.13, We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things. That's a right description. We're the scum of the world. We are the dregs of all things. In fact, just a couple of chapters earlier, in chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, here's what Paul says, not just about himself and his colleagues, but about the Corinthians in general, and I would dare say, of course, by application, all of us as Christians. Here's what he says, 1 Corinthians 1, 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh. We're not smart. Not many mighty. We're not powerful. Not many noble. We don't have a lot of fanfare. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world, that's ourselves, to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world, that's us, to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world, and the despised, that's who we are, God has chosen. And He's chosen the things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are. We're the part of the not, so that no man may boast before God. He says, but it is by his doing that you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written let him who boasts boast in the Lord there's no reason for us to boast in our accomplishments there's no reason at all for us to boast in our wisdom and in our might because in and of ourselves, with a realistic view of who we are, there isn't anything at all to boast in. 
The only thing that we ought to boast in is in our Lord because it is by His doing that you are in Christ Jesus. The fact of the matter is we're nothing special. In fact, in that last verse that Paul quotes, verse 31, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord, that's the prophet Jeremiah. And do you remember in Jeremiah chapter 9, these words that tell us from the Old Testament that we're nothing special? The oft-repeated Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, And let not the mighty man boast of his might, and let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Why do I bring up these passages? I bring them up to underscore the point that according to Paul and according to Jeremiah and several others in our Bibles, we are nothing. We aren't sufficient in ourselves. We are to be humbled by the idea that God will use any and every platform to show us that our boast is not to be in ourselves, but our boast is to be in the Lord. We can't boast in our wisdom. We can't boast in our might. We can't boast in our nobility. We can't boast in anything other than boasting in the Lord. And God will stop at nothing to show us who we really are so that our self-sufficiency would be completely taken away from us and given to the sufficiency of God for whom is owed all things by us. And there's another author, Agur, who even stoops so low, quote-unquote, to show us, even from nature itself, from four beasts, four creatures, four of the lowest on the earth, to so humble us that He shows us, does Augur, how to live the Christian life. It's amazing that God would so humble us by taking the lowest of the earth, the creatures, that part of nature, to show us what they do so that we would understand that we could actually humbly so learn from them. It's amazing. Turn your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30. It's amazing. It's an amazing, humbling experience to know that what God does is that He will even capture what He has created among the beasts of the earth to show us in Scripture from the platform of unthinking, unreasoning animals and what they do instinctively to show us principles about living the Christian life. Now that, my friends, is incredibly humbling. It really should be. Because it's showing us what we aren't and what we should be. 
and doing so from the platform of bestial creatures who do things by instinct and don't even think through the reality of what they're doing. God just creates innately in, Im, in them the opportunity to preserve themselves, to do the things that will make for survival, and then God, in His imaginative wisdom, infinitely so, takes these beasts, these creatures, and turns it around completely, and He talks and acts as though they're like persons, so that we could look at these persons and emulate them so that we could learn valuable, crucial principles about life. It's amazing. And I want to show you four of them this morning. Four crucial life lessons from nature. Four crucial life lessons from nature. We could call this Lance Quinn's National Geographic Sermon. Okay? Here they are. Here's what Agur does. Look in your Bibles at Proverbs chapter 30, verse 24. Here's how he sets it up. Proverbs 30, 24. Agur says to his disciples, Ithiel and Eucal, four things, men, four things are small on the earth, but they are exceedingly wise. Now the first thing that jumps off the page as Augur sets this up is that he personifies these creatures as though they're persons because he says even though they're small, that is small in stature, insignificant, you'd almost trip over these life lessons if you weren't observing them carefully and he says, but they are exceedingly wise. And the first thing you and I should say is, wait a minute, they're not even people. How can they be exceedingly wise? They're not thinking like us. They don't reason like us. They don't have mental capacities like us. They don't have any spiritual depth perception like us. How can Augur say, how can the Word of God really say that while they're small and insignificant and while they're creatures that crawl upon the earth or that fly in the sky, how can they teach us anything? And Augur says, they could be small, but they are exceedingly wise. Wise? They don't even think. They're instinctual. They're unreasoning animals. How could we learn anything about them? Here's the first one. Here's the first one. Verse 25. The ants are not a strong people, but they prepare their food in the summer. The outline point. The not-so-strong can still plan and prepare. The first life lesson that he wants to teach us is that the not-so-strong can still plan and prepare. And he uses this incredibly small creature we know as the ant. It's the harvester ant. You ever seen one of those young children? Massive anthills. I mean, it's amazing to watch these ants. Have you ever seen them? I know you've seen them if you've ever been to a picnic. Because they're all around. They've always been invited to every picnic known to man. And they come, these harvester ants, in droves. And you always, when you see them, see them scurrying around, most of them in line, forming, as it were, pockets of trade, pockets of buying and selling. And somehow they forage, they grab, they harvest all of their food. And according to Augur, they do it when? In the summer. 
when they have access to the kind of food that they want. And they scurry and they form and they fidget all over the place and they build themselves these wonderful ant hotels and they harvest all of their food and they can gather a ton of it and then when winter comes, maybe when those predators against such ants would not be so easily able to find them, they're in the ant hotel having a great old time. Can you hear it? Uh, would you pass the bark? It's so lovely this time of year. They are secure. And yet, what does Augur say about them? They are not strong. They're not strong. They are those that are so weak, as it were, when compared to everything else in the world, they are so not so strong. And I suppose that what Augur does is he tells us in very unmistakable terms that by analogy, so are we. We're not so strong. You see, that's the whole point. We're not so mighty. As Christians, we're nothing special. But even though the not so strong comprise both the natural world and the spiritual dimension, we can still, like the ant, plan and prepare. In other words, Augur says, look, disciples, look at life. Observe the, the harvester ant. They're not strong. They can be so easily, especially by us, stepped on, exterminated, eliminated from life. And yet, yet even though they're not so strong, they have the marvelous, God-given capacity, instinctively so, to do all their harvesting, all of their work, all of their planning, all of their preparation in the kinds of seasons and times that are appropriate and best so that when those winter months come, they're able to survive. You know, I suspect that one of the reasons why we're being told this by Augur is because as Christians, even those who've been regenerated by Jesus Christ and are on our way to heaven can still do things at times that are very un-ant-like where we don't do the kinds of planning and preparation that we ought to do. And so Augur just pulls the analogy right out of life and observance, and he says, in fact, notice in Proverbs chapter 6, the same kind of analogy about the ant. Proverbs 6. And you know that if he's talking about planning and preparation, he's going to say as a convicting word to us, if you are not planning and if you are not prepared, then you're probably lazy. You're not working hard. You're not putting forth a diligent effort. And notice the same analogy, Proverbs chapter 6, verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise, which, having no chief, officer or ruler prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. Notice the ant. Look at God's created order. Look 
at how God in, innately gives to the ant, even an unreasoning, unthinking animal, a creature, a bug, as it were, the instinct to know the right thing to do, to be wise in order to survive. Verse 9, How long will you lie down, O sluggard? That's the opposite of the wise ant. When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. My friends, in the National Geographic Sermon, plan and prepare. Notice the ant. You say, well, what is it in the spiritual dimension if the ant is doing it literally, gathering food? What's our food? Here it is, wisdom. Wisdom. Plan and prepare and store up wisdom. That's, that's the point. Work hard like the ant. We're the not so strong. We don't have the strength in and of ourselves to be able to harvest the wise words of God unless we are able to do it in the Lord's strength so that we are gathering at the appropriate time the wise words so that in the time of need we would have it. And we would have it at our fingertips. In fact, look at Proverbs 10 verse 14. Here's the point I think Augur's making about the not so strong ant. Proverbs 10 14. Wise men do what? Store up knowledge. Wise men store up knowledge, but with the mouth of the foolish, ruin is at hand. Store up knowledge. What does the ant do? Stores up her food in the summer so that there would be a wonderful harvest in the winter. What does the Christian do? The Christian stores up wise, life-giving, life-learning knowledge. That's, that's the point Augur is making. That's what we ought to do. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Look at the observable issues in nature with this very small creature, but who is exceedingly wise. What should we do? How should we respond? This is how we should respond. My son, Proverbs 2.1, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, like the ant treasuring their food when they're going to need it, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. And then notice this, verse 7, He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. You say, well, if I'm a part of the not-so-strong like the ant is in the natural world, who's stronger than I am? Here's the answer. Satan. Satan's stronger than we are. 
Would you want to go up against a foe that's stronger than you are without storing up the right kind of knowledge, the right kind of wisdom, and the right kind of understanding? Not on your life. He's far more powerful. He's far more wise, crafty, cunning. And so this life lesson that Augur wants us to know is, just like the ant in nature, store up wisdom so that you need it for the moment. So that when Satan comes against you with his crafty schemes, you are able to store up the kind of knowledge and wisdom for the time that you desperately need it. That's the whole point. Life lesson number one. The not so strong can still plan and prepare. Are you planning? Are you planning for the day of attack? Are you prepared? Do you prepare yourself spiritually for the battles that will come against you every day? How are you preparing yourself? What are you doing? You take your Bible with you into the battle? You read it? You study it? Do you know it? Do you memorize it? Do you defend it? Do you teach it? Do you love it? This is, this is a battle. And there is a stronger foe. But greater is the one who is in us, the Holy Spirit, than the one who is in the world. That's true. But you have to be ready. You have to put your armor on. And if we know about ourselves that we're nothing special, and if we know that we're a part of the not-so-strong, we are still able to learn a life lesson on planning and preparing for the day of battle. I hope you're prepared. I hope you're planning for it. It's coming. Don't be unarmed. It's a spiritual warfare. It's a wonderful life lesson about those who are not so strong, like us. Secondly, secondly, how about the not so mighty? The not so mighty. We can still persevere and protect. Look at Proverbs 30, verse 26. It's a wonderful, wonderful life lesson. The Shepanim are not mighty people, yet they make their houses in the rocks. Now maybe we're going to have to talk a little bit about the Shepanim. Uh, in some of the translations, uh, it might say badgers, and that would be it, the rock badgers. Now, these are, these are amazing creatures. Uh, think in your mind something like this. Maybe a rock badger would look a lot like a, a rabbit uh, with a short tail but without the long ears. And they have, interestingly, on their feet sort of uh, long nails in which they can dig into the rocks. And yet they also have on their feet sort of a web-like apparatus with little suction cups so that when they're on those high, craggy rocks in the mountainous region of the Middle East, they're able to keep themselves when they're very imbalanced. And so they have these long nails and they have these web-like feet with little suction cups underneath and they're able, even from the encroaching flying vultures or eagles and even from other animals who are attempting to get them like mountain lions or goats on the mountain, they're able to persevere and protect. 
Protect whom? Themselves. The Shepanim, the rock badgers, the conies. They are not so mighty. They're not so mighty. Yet, Augur says, they make their houses in the rocks. What do they do? Well, they take those long nails and probably their teeth also, and they find a spot, and they don't want to, of course, become prey for the predators who want to eat them in the animal kingdom, and so they dig, and they scratch, and they claw, and they find their way burrowed into the very rock of the surface of a mountain so that they are protected. And so they persevere. They scratch, they claw, they do everything they can to survive. And I suspect, more often than not, they're able to protect themselves. Any analogies that you might think of with regard to the Christian life? How about perseverance? How about the idea that you and I, in this spiritual battle are doing everything possible on a human level, knowing that we are, according to the Spirit of God, protected. Nonetheless, we have a responsibility as human beings to do all that we can to make sure that we are persevering in faith so that we are able to be protected by God. Just like the rock badger. It's a a wonderful analogy about the Christian life. Psalm 104.18 says this, The high mountains are for the wild goats. The cliffs are a refuge for the Shepanim. A refuge. That's their home. That's their protective place. And they've persevered. They've clawed. They've scratched. They've done everything possible in and of themselves, even though they know they're not mighty, they know they're not powerful, and so are we. We know that about ourselves. We're nothing buttery. We're nothing special. And yet, we have to do everything we can in the Christian life to persevere. We have to scratch. We have to claw. We have to do everything within our power, knowing, believing, hoping, trusting that God will allow us to be protected from our enemies. How are you doing in the perseverance business? Are you doing everything you can? Are you like the rock badgers, the conies in the Middle East? They uh, hung around, many of them, sort of near the Dead Sea area and beyond. And they would go into these very, very high mountains... I went to one of those high mountains called Masada. And while I don't remember seeing one of these little furry creatures, I can just well imagine that they were bait big time for somebody. That is some creature. And they have to claw and scratch and burrow and badger, pardon the pun, everything and everyone in their path so that they are able to survive They are persevering creatures. Oh, they look cuddly. They look like a a delicate meal for someone. Delicious. And I'm sure that some of them met their fate, as it were, because they weren't persevering. In fact, even about these rock badgers, when he says they're not mighty, 
Maybe he means a couple of things. One thing he might mean is this. They tended not to travel in large packs, large numbers. So maybe they weren't mighty in the sense that they weren't numerous. Or maybe he means that they're not mighty in the sense that they are not physically strong, that they would not be able to contend with a low-flying vulture or an eagle who wanted a meal. Or maybe there was some other predatory animal who was around those mountainous regions and their main delicious delight was to get one of those rock badgers right in their mouth. And I'm sure there were some of those, maybe that got cut off from the small band who were around them, and they were a meal for someone. And you know, by, again, analogy, I presume that there are some of us who aren't working hard at perseverance. You're not doing the responsible things to make sure that you are not a prey for the enemy. You say, well, what kind of enemy? Here's one kind of enemy, the world. The world. All the allurements, all the enticements of the world. Here's another. The devil. The devil and all his hosts. And they will stop at nothing to swoop down and to try to take you so that you would be their lunch. Or, here's another enemy, your own self your own indwelling sin. What you're fighting and scratching and clawing in order to kill, to suppress, to put down. All of those temptations, all of those ideas that are contending for the truth of God. And you must persevere, my friends. And when you do, you can be protected. You can be protected from the assaults and the temptations from the enemy. You can do the kinds of things that God Himself will then be pleased and delighted to protect you as you persevere. Oh, those rock badgers, they're not so mighty and neither are we. But the lesson we learn from those that are small yet exceedingly wise is that even though we're the not so mighty, we can still persevere and protect. Here's another life lesson number three. Verse 27. The locusts have no king, yet all of them go out in ranks. What's the life lesson here? The not so gifted can still partner and pervade. The not-so-gifted can still partner and pervade. Most of us, I'm sure, have not had much exposure to a swarm of locusts. How many of you have ever seen any locusts? Many of you have. Would you imagine such a swarm of locusts that the Bible even describes the swarm of locusts as so heavy in the sky that it looks like nighttime. Absolutely blocking out a view of the sun. Swarming so incredibly on the land that there is no light coming through the locusts because they're so close to each other and they fly in such formation that they are able to blot out the sun and destroy everything in its path. It's amazing devastation. In fact, look in your Bibles at the prophet Joel. Joel's 
prophecy. Chapter 1. Listen to how God describes judgment upon others, devastation, and He uses the analogy, my friends, of the devastation and the destruction of the judgment of locusts. Joel chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this, this judgment, happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it and let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation. In other words, it's going to be such a story. It's going to be so grand, so devastating that you will be telling it for generations to come, this judgment upon God's enemies. Verse 4, What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, and creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. That's devastation. That's an amazing, obliteration kind of devastation. In fact, if you want to see the literal, this is talking, of course, by analogy about the judgment of locusts. Look at Exodus chapter 10, and you will see, of course, in one of the plagues of Egypt against Pharaoh and his hosts, the devastation of locusts. In fact, this was the greatest devastation of locusts in the history of the world. There was nothing before that time and nothing after that time that could be compared. Look at Exodus chapter 10, beginning in verse 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come up on the land of Egypt and eat, notice this, every plant of the land, even all that the hail has left. They just had the the plague of the hail, and now come the locusts. Verse 13, So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord directed an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled in all the territory of Egypt. Notice this, devastation. They were very numerous. There had never been so many locusts, nor would there be so many again, for they covered the surface of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And they ate every plant of the land and all of the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Thus nothing green was left on tree or plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Nahum 3.15 says it this way, Judgment on you, Nineveh, will consume you as the locust does. Multiply yourself like the creeping locust. Multiply yourself like the swarming locust. What's the point? These amazingly small flying creatures are exceedingly wise. How so? The not so gifted. What do you mean? They don't have a king. They don't have a ruler. They don't have a captain. There's nobody in charge. There's nobody to tell them to... Line up in formation. There's nobody to tell them to get right next to each other so as to be so completely unified, so completely together, to fly in such a formation to do the devastating work that they are called upon to do. There's no king, there's no leader, there's nobody in charge, and yet 
They all go out in ranks. Notice that. Yet all of them go out in ranks. The point I think Augur is making is to tell us the kind of impact we could have if we partnered together. Wow. It's incredible. It's a incredible thought. The, the not-so-gifted. There's no gifted leader. There, there, there's no gifted person. We're the not-so-gifted. That's who we are. Have you noticed all of the world's laureates, teachers, physicists, doctors, scholars, the church? Not so much. Not so much. Where are the leaders? Oh, there are few. There are a few, but comparatively speaking, with regard to the world, all of these wonderful thinkers and all of these great scholars and all of these wonderful technicians and all of the great minds. And he says, look at the locusts. They have no leader. And yet, and yet, they all follow in rank. They're all marshaled in proper formation. In fact, the not-so-gifted can still partner. Can you imagine the unity of the body of Jesus Christ, even with the not-so-gifted, the not-so-gifted leaders, and how much positive devastation we can bring upon the forces of darkness if we just partner together? If we just partner together? Look, I'm nothing special as one of your leaders. Please believe me. There's nothing special here. It's the not-so-gifted. That's not to disparage what God does when He grants gifts. It's just to say, look at this exceedingly small creature, the locust, and believe me, they don't have anybody to lead them, and yet they're all in unified formation, and they're all doing the work that God has innately called them to do. And what about the body of Christ? We have the not-so-gifted leading us, and I'm at the top of that list. And yet God, in His infinite mercy and grace, and in His sovereign plan, has called us to partner together, even with all of your failed, falling leaders, as weak as we are. Sometimes I think leaders like myself and my other band of beloved knuckleheads are like the Keystone Cops. We're just falling and stumbling and bumbling and every once in a while we lead you in the right way. I suspect that what Augur is trying to teach us as a life lesson is even if you don't have the terribly gifted and the terribly powerful and the terribly mighty and those who are just going to lead you to the promised land, you can still march in formation you can still be unified and you can pervade, pervade, to permeate, to saturate. There can be a pervasive partnering so that the work of the kingdom moves on even when the leaders die off. Don't just sit back, my friends, and wait for the leaders to do the work. You do the work. You partner together with each other. You don't need every time and in every instance our saying to you, that's good, go do that. Go do ministry. 
Have a Bible study. Serve someone. Evangelize those around you. Get involved in any and all ministries. We have opportunities now, not only in the summer months, but in the fall and hereafter, no doubt, so that you, on Sundays or some other time of the day or week, you can partner together with a few, a band of brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, and you can do great ministry exploits. You can It's the unity of the body. Because of our union with Jesus Christ through His death, His burial, His resurrection, we can do great exploits for Him. We can be unified. We can partner together. All of them go out in ranks, and yet they have no leader. How is it possible? We're leaderless. How can we do what we need to do? We need someone. Remember the children of Israel? We must have a leader over us. Learn the life lesson. The not so gifted can still partner and pervade. You can so permeate and saturate society with the gospel even if you have the not so gifted leading you like myself. Are you stopping at nothing to accomplish the appointed task. Be unified. John 17, because of Christ, His prayers for us, even when the not-so-gifted are leading you. Fourth life lesson and last. The not-so-noble can still persist and prevail. The not-so-noble can still persist and prevail. Look at verse 28 of Proverbs 30. The lizard you may grasp with the hands, yet it is in king's palaces. If you had the authorized version of King James or maybe the New King James, it might say spider. But probably the best translation, even though this is the only time this particular word occurs in the Old Testament, what Grammarians call it a hapax legomena. It is, it is a word that probably, instead of being translated spider, in most of our newer translations, is rightly, I believe, translated lizard. Or how about this? This will be fun because you see commercials all the time. A gecko. A gecko. And what is it about this gecko? Here's the whole point. The whole point is, it's not so noble. It's not really any big deal. Even the smallest of children are infatuated, fascinated by those little lizards that all crawl around and they're totally harmless. Totally harmless. There's no nobility in a lizard at all. Contrary to the green one who speaks in an Australian accent. Contrary. He makes a lot of money, but most lizards don't. They're just... There's just nothing noble about them. In fact, you can just grab one in your hand and you can play with them. You could probably even with your hand crush them if you wanted to because they are very small and very ignoble. There's just nothing special about them. (laughs) And this may be the pinnacle. Maybe he puts it last here to show us that at the pinnacle of looking at four Very small creatures. The fourth and last is so ignoble, so insignificant, that Augur's pressing the point again, just like Paul, just like Jeremiah, and so are we. So are we. We're ignoble. Isn't that what Paul said? The not many noble. 
That's who we are. And God delights in it. I'm telling you, He delights in it. He delights in it because He works with the not many wise, the not many mighty, the not many powerful, the not many noble. Because then He is exalted to His proper place and we are put in our place where we belong. And what does the lizard do? He ends up, even though he's a lizard, even though he's a gecko, he ends up in the palace. The palace of all places. This ignoble creature who's very small but exceedingly wise ends up as a subject, as it were, of the sovereign king in the palace. You see it? The ignoble become noble because of whose they belong to and the place they live. It's not inherent within them. It's not who we are in and of ourselves. It's because of where we reside. It's because we have an inheritance of the sovereign of sovereigns. It's our God and we have palace residences because even though we are ignoble, He is infinitely noble. You see, here's the life lesson. Even though we're the not-so-noble, that gecko, he persists. You ever seen him? They dart, they move fast, quick, because they're so scared, they're so ignoble, they're so insignificant, that they are constantly believing, quote-unquote, that they are going to be meat for somebody else. And so they move and dart away, and ultimately you can't find them, you can't see them, you don't know where they are, and in the darkness of night, they're able to dart and move quickly, even through their ignobility to the place where the next time you see them, where are they? They're in the palace, protected, safe. They persist, and ultimately, they prevail. Is that not a wonderful analogy of the Christian life? Metaphorically speaking, you and I are nothing but geckos. That's all we are. And that's the life lesson we ought to learn. Persistence. Prevailing. This is, this is exactly what comes to Paul near the end of his life. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. It's amazing. This is what is said by Paul. Think now. Gecko. Gecko. First Timothy 6, 11, But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Persist. Persist. Be like the gecko who darts and moves in the nighttime air so that he cannot be found out. Take hold of the eternal life with which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment, prevail, persist, without stain or reproach, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which He will bring about at the proper time, He who is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And if you persist, you will be in the palace of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's where you'll be. Gecko as you are, lizard as I am, 
will be living in the king's place. And 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. That's the ignoble Paul. May it be not counted against them, but the Lord stood with me. That's the Lord taking care of a lizard. And strengthened me. He persisted, the Lord caused him to prevail, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. I couldn't resist that. The lion's mouth couldn't catch the gecko. Couldn't do it. The Lord strengthened me. I'm a lizard for Christ. And God teaches me a life lesson. Persistence, persistence, persistence. You will prevail. As a Christian, you will ultimately spend eternity in the palace of the great King. Does that sound like something you want to do? Persist and you will prevail. We are the we're the not so strong. We're, we're the not so mighty. We're the not so gifted. We're the not so noble. But if we plan and prepare, if we persevere in order to be protected, and if we, although not gifted like the world says about itself, we can still do all of the things to partner and be a pervasive, unified force for the sake of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And we can, even though we're geckos, can do all that we can to persist, persist and God will, in fact, allow us to prevail. Four small creatures, but exceedingly wise. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, what a, what a national geographic lesson. What a, what a life lesson these four creatures teach us to be. They're incredibly small, but they are exceedingly wise. Father, we should be humbled as human beings that You are teaching us these crucial life lessons from the platform of, of observing these little beasts that can't talk or reason or have strength or power or gifting or nobility, but who nevertheless compensate in order to plan and prepare, persevere and protect, partner and pervade, and persist and prevail. Oh, Lord, teach us much from nature, from Your created order, as we humbly receive the message and apply it to our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.